I'm always puzzled when I'm asked, what can we do? I think that there are a lot of clever people and a lot of experience in the West. Political will is needed. If you ask me for a short answer, political will. I don't think that kind of like rhetoric of Hong Kong is part of China is to justify that kind of like brutality and the authoritarian ruling of the Chinese government in Hong Kong. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. In the last days, a number of well-known commentators and media personalities who courageously opposed Donald Trump in 2016 have stated their intention to vote for him in 2020. Ben Shapiro did so on his hugely popular show. James Lindsay, one of the critics of critical race theory, has also said that he would vote for Trump until the left starts to push back on some of the crazier things within itself. Now, as some of you know, I don't think that concerns about liberal tendencies on the left are altogether picked out of thin air. There is a real atmosphere of intolerance rising on parts of the left. Even some elected democratic politicians have not been as good as they should have been in calling out, for example, violent forms of protest on left fringes. There's also a worrying movement to throw out the core parts of the Constitution or to pack the Supreme Court. None of that is trivial. Nevertheless, it would be a huge mistake, both a moral and a strategic mistake, to vote for Donald Trump in the hope of checking illiberal political tendencies on the left. There are two reasons for that. The first is that Donald Trump himself is a bigger and more present danger to core philosophically liberal values. It is obviously some of his shocking rhetoric, his threats to lock up his political adversaries, his refusal to commit to a peaceful transfer of power. But it is also the actions that the Trump administration has taken. The fake national emergency to direct money to one of Trump's pet political project. The extreme pressure on independent-minded civil servants. The politicization of the Department of Justice. The use of political power to try and punish owners of companies whom Trump dislikes, like Jeff Bezos and Amazon the attempts to channel money into his own pockets, and so on and so forth. Secondly, I also think it is a mistake to think that it would help to push back on illiberal ideas on the left if Donald Trump got re-elected. And the reason for that is that Trump's extremism, Trump's excesses, are themselves the strongest source of support for many of those ideals. It is Trump being in office that makes some of the most pessimistic, some of the most, I would say, overly pessimistic statements about how fundamentally unjust America is seem more plausible. And it is 
the danger posed by Trump, which makes it so hard for reasonable voices on the left to stand up to protesters against Trump who are committing violence or destroying important political norms. In 2016, there were fears that Trump's election would remake America in its own image, that his influence would make the country far more right-wing. In fact, opinion moved to the left. In some ways, the same might happen now. If Trump were re-elected, we would likely get an even more vicious cultural and political fight and polarization would be further deepened. It would become even harder to stand up to some of the illiberal tendencies on the left. On the other hand, if Democrats sweep and Biden takes office, there would likely start to be some pushback against the excesses on the left. So, for reasons both moral and strategic, both short-term and long-term, voting for Donald Trump in order to contain liberal tendencies on the left is like cutting off your nose to spite your face. Today we have a special episode of The Good Fight in which I'm talking not to one but to two important opposition leaders and democratic activists from around the world. First up, there's Andrei Sanikov. He is one of the most senior opposition figures in Belarus. He was imprisoned and tortured by the Lukashenko regime and recognized by Amnesty International as a prisoner of conscience. He is now living in exile in Warsaw. The second is Nathan Law, one of the most important young activists for democracy in Hong Kong and a former chairman of Demosisto. He has recently left Hong Kong to avoid the crackdown there and is now temporarily in residence in London. Especially putting these two conversations in dialogue with each other Um, having them back to back helped me learn a lot about how difficult it is to stand up for those values under the most challenging circumstances and some of the trade-offs that pro-democracy activists have to maneuver and think through as they are fighting for their ideals. I hope you enjoy these two conversations. Andrei Sanikov, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Tell us a little bit about the situation in Belarus today. Our listeners will know that there has been for a long time a dictator in the country, that there was an obviously falsified election at this point a little over a month ago, and that for the first time in many decades, there was a real mass uprising to contest those falsified elections. What is the state of play as we're recording this, Andre? First of all, the elections were falsified not for the first time. I think after 1994, none of the elections or a referenda were recognized by international community. I mean by OEC observers, by uh, Office for Democratic Institutions and Human Rights observers, the only certified observers that are authorized to 
produced a verdict on the elections according to the Copenhagen documents. So uh, Lukashenko has been illegitimate for quite a long time. And unfortunately, uh, there was not much reaction on this state of falsifying elections and continuous as illegitimate rule of Belarus. And so it was boiling and boiling. And that's why the people got fed up with his rule, with his uh, brutality, because it is not that uh, he's using force in the street for the first time, because uh, it is in 1999 when the real opposition leaders uh, that were much more popular than Lukashenko were killed. The, the official version was they disappeared uh, and we tried to find them. Uh, we were exploring all kinds of possibilities, although the, the uh, suspicion was uh, always there that they were murdered by Lukashenko on Lukashenko's orders. And I'm speaking about the former interior minister Zaharenko. I'm speaking about the uh, former speaker, a vice speaker of the parliament uh, and uh, head of election committee, uh, Gonchar. And I'm speaking about mysterious death of the uncontested leader of the opposition, Gennady Karpenko, who, in the hospital. So uh, that's why I can say that uh, Lukashenko has been unlawful ruler starting from end of the 90s when he changed the constitution and used up the power and destroyed the separation of powers. And he did nothing to really deliver on his promises and he started to build a dictatorial system. Very ruthless, very dangerous for the people uh, and uh, this time people revolted. And so we've seen the pictures of these incredible protests in the street of Belarus, of the capital, but also of other cities. But at the same time, I guess the question in those moments is always whether the military and the security forces stand by the president. And so far, despite a few instances of fraternization between government troops and protesters, it looks as though the apparatus of the state is standing by Lukashenko. So what do you think the prospect is over the next weeks or months of these protests actually helping to bring Lukashenko down? Uh, yes, uh, Lukashenko is uh, very attentive to the international reaction, to the outside reaction. And uh, if he sees that the democratic world is not eager, let's say very reluctant to react to these atrocities in, in Belarus, he continues and it is taken by him as an encouragement. As for how long it will last, I think that it may last for as many days as it is allowed to last again by Belarusians inside the country and by the democratic world. Because if the sanctions start to be imposed, I think that it will produce an immediate effect because the, the Western world has a lot of leverage, a lot of soft power to deal with the situation in Belarus, starting with the targeted sanctions, personal sanctions, which personally I don't think that they're effective, and the continuing with economic sanctions, with trade sanctions, with financial sanctions. So if those are being applied, then uh, it will stop very quickly and it will help people to first of all, to survive and to continue their peaceful protest inside the country to get rid of Lukashenko. 
sanctions are always a controversial topic within Western countries because critics of them, especially on the left, tend to say that they're somehow counterproductive or that they only hurt ordinary people. So it's very interesting, I think, to hear you as one of the leaders of the opposition in Belarus calling for those sanctions. Explain to us why you think that they would be so effective and why it is that broad-spectrum sanctions, rather than those really just targeted at the core figures in the Belarusian state, are most likely to help the opposition? I don't know why they're controversial. I can understand why the countries are reluctant, because they have business with Lukashenko, because dictatorship is a very lucrative situation, because dictatorships are allowing for dirty business, for business bypassing any laws. Dictatorships are natural hubs for smuggling goods, and in case of Belarus, it's been a, a smuggling hub for trade relations of European Union and Russia. When there is a trade war between the two, Russia's embargo on EU products and EU sanctions against Russia. So I think it's a hypocrisy to call sanctions counterproductive and especially hypocritical argument, which I hear quite often that it will hurt the people in the country under sanctions. No, Lukashenko, his regime and his brutality is hurting people, not the sanctions. I can tell you that I am myself an example of effectiveness of the sanctions and economic sanctions because I was released when I was in jail after the election of 2010. I was released only after the pressure from international community was strengthened with the economic sanctions. For the first time, the EU started to introduce economic sanctions against some bagmen of Lukashenko, and then I was released, and my colleague and my friend, Dmitry Bandarenko, were released, and then the EU stopped their economic trade and economic sanctions, and the rest of... Uh, Opposition leaders uh, continued to be kept in jail, like Nikolai Statkevich. First, I must say that sanctions is not a strategy. It's a tool for any strategy as regards a difficult situation like we are having now in Belarus, as regards dictatorships. It's a very effective tool, but it has to be inserted into the effective strategy of how to deal, how to deal politically, how to deal economically, how to deal uh, in different international environments, different international organizations, what could be done as regards the situation when the people's lives are threatened. So sanctions have to be understood as a tool, not as a strategy. And then strategy has to follow. So what should that strategy look like? And what can Western countries and what can perhaps individuals within Western countries who listen to this podcast do in order to help? I think that they are now taking appropriate measures, which were never taken before. And I think uh, that they have to continue with that, only to be stronger on their principles and not to be afraid, not to be shy, to have even stronger measures. What I mean? I mean, uh, for the first time, they are really delegitimizing Lukashenko. There is a number of statements and unilateral positions of democratic countries that Lukashenko is uh, not a legitimate rule of the country anymore and they will act appropriately. And uh, there are also statements and resolutions from the European Union, from the United States, 
which is very important. They have to continue to cut the relationship with the official circles in Minsk. They have to withdraw their ambassadors immediately, immediately, because it is the presence of ambassadors today in Belarus is... Uh, I simply cannot understand it. Why they are still there? Why they are not called back even for consultations? They have to put pressure on Russia because Russia is actively interfering into the internal affairs of Belarus and the West is just making statements. Kremlin is interfering and warning the West not to interfere. It simply shouldn't be tolerated anymore. And Kremlin should also be under sanctions because of its position in Belarus. I'm always puzzled when I'm asked, what can we do? I think that there are a lot of clever people and a lot of experience in the West. Political will is needed. If you ask me for a short answer, political will. Why do you think that political will is missing? Is it just that Belarus is not a country that a lot of people in the West know very well, that it's a relatively small country? Is it because of those business interests? Is it because statesmen in Europe and North America see Belarus implicitly as a kind of part of a Russian sphere of influence? I mean, why do you think that they haven't recalled those ambassadors, that they don't do more to support the opposition? I think all of that, but mostly that the importance of Belarus as a geostrategically important country is underestimated. I don't know why. Maybe a lot of corruption among political circles in the West. We know about that, not only as regards Russia, but also as regards other former Soviet republics like Azerbaijan, like others, that politicians are being bought, strategic think tanks are being bought by dirty money in the West to help dictators in the former Soviet Union. But uh, most of all, yes, the, the importance of Belarus is underestimated. I'm myself surprised that after the largest military exercise on the territory of Belarus, organized by Russia, and definitely and openly directed against the West, against our neighbors in the European Union, Poland, Baltic states, and our neighbor to the south, Ukraine, people are still thinking of uh, Lukashenko as somebody to talk to. That was very annoying, you know. Lukashenko was considered a partner for the West to deal with geostrategic problems and to deal with, with Russia aggressiveness, which was extremely bizarre attitude for us. We knew that it was coming. I mean, the brutality that Lukashenko is demonstrating today. We knew it all along. We knew it for many years. But nobody wanted to listen to us because... Uh, who cares about you? Who cares that you are talking to us uh, and uh, exaggerating the dangers? That was their words. I mean, many politicians in the West. You are not being killed in, in hundreds, uh, even uh, uh, in thousands. But uh, what was forgotten and ignored, Belarus is strategically extremely important for Europe. If uh, Ukraine is called the cornerstone for European security, then Belarus is a linchpin for European security. Look at our history, look at geography, look at what was going on during every war in our region and how important Belarus was, and you will understand the, the importance of Belarus. That was ignored. Another debate that's really gaining traction in the West at the moment is about how we should think about democratic values, whether those are provincial Western values, and there's a mistake 
in trying to impose them on other countries. And so actually we should do less, for example, to fund institutions like the National Endowment of Democracy that engage in democracy promotion around the world, that help opposition movements to access resources to be able to fight for their values, or whether to think of those as universal values, that people irrespective of the part of the world they're in, irrespective of their cultural background, irrespective of the histories of a country, will aspire to, and that therefore we have an obligation to help foster. One of the amazing things when these changes do happen is that dictatorships look incredibly strong, and yet they can actually collapse relatively quickly. And one of the optimistic things about human history is that for all of the terrible suffering it teaches us about, we have hundreds and thousands of examples of dictatorships that look impenetrable, uh, suddenly collapsing. Absolutely. What do you think this says about what kinds of political tactics are effective for political change? I'm struck by the difference between a lot of the political activity that goes in, and I don't mean to compare the two in any way, but that goes in Western countries into, for example, resisting authoritarian populists, you know, with a lot of online activism, a lot of posting on Facebook and Twitter. And the way that in Ukraine, it is hundreds of thousands of people streaming out in the street. What advice would you give to political activists in other countries, whether it's in dictatorships or within democracies, for what political strategies are effective and, and what political strategies give you the impression that you're doing something, but you're not actually helping to maximize the chances of political change? It's a very good question. It's not only for political activists. I think it's the question for the international community in general, because I, from the very beginning, when we had the first steps of dictatorship, if I might say so, of Lukashenko, I said that you will have uh, real problems now on the post-Soviet states. Watch out for Russia, because Russia is in no way democratic. Watch out for other countries of the former Soviet Union that will turn into dictatorship, especially in uh, Asian republics and Caucasian republics. And you have to find soft power to deal with this situation, because if you don't find soft power to deal with Lukashenko and his regime, forget about Russia you'll be helpless, you'll be absolutely weak in front of Russian dictatorship and Russian aggressiveness when it comes. So it happened. I'm not happy that my predictions were accurate. But it's still time to think hard and to apply soft power in Belarusian situation. And here you mentioned political activists in the world. They have to lobby their governments for stronger attitude towards Lukashenko. We are happy that Belarusians all over the world are demonstrating, that there are very meaningful demonstrations going on. For I can give you an example of demonstration near the stock exchange in London, protesting against bloody bonds that were placed at London Stock Exchange and protesting also at the banks that facilitated these bonds to be placed. And I also can mention you the, the protest in the United States demanding the tough attitude of, uh, towards Lukashenko and the Senate and Congress already reacting by considering him non-legitimate ruler of Belarus. So I think all kinds of soft power of political activists, but also of the governments, also of the governments and financial support is also something that is badly needed today. And what is lacking today, which is very important in our situation, this strong international trade union solidarity, because 
the strikes that started in Belarus, they were not noticed in the world. Only now, slowly, we are having some information that the trade unions are sending their support, they are sending their representatives, like the head of Polish Solidarity, Solidarity, I mean, trade union went to Belarus even and met with this workers who are on strike. But, you know, they are left alone. They are being now ruthlessly oppressed whenever they start to think of strikes. and They're being arrested. And we know how strong the trade unions could be. We know how strong the American trade unions, German, French, English, and British, and others are. It's a powerful force, which is not being used in Belarus. So I think that if there is a really concentrated effort of soft power as regards Belarusian situation, it will be really helpful and it will be a very quick way to the solution. What the would you say to those Belarus. people who say, you know what, the United States, European Union countries shouldn't engage in democracy promotion. We are just imposing our values on other people and if they prefer to be ruled by dictators, let them. I assume that you don't agree with that. Can you say something to the kinds of people who make those arguments? It is a very humiliating approach. You know, I am one of the leaders of the European Belarus civil campaign. The name is European Belarus. And we stand for integration of Belarus into the European Union and into the transatlantic area. We completely share the values and we want them to be present in Belarus. We were fighting for that. And uh, you know what is happening today? That we are fighting for European and universal values in Belarus. And we are not supported by those who declare that these are their values and they are built upon these values. Because I don't know any other values as a guidance for Belarusian development in the future. Because the question is very simple. We have laws and uh, rule of law to the west of us in Europe. And we have absolute lawlessness to the east of us in Russia. So I think it is natural to choose the protection of human rights, not only human rights, but uh, every right, even economic and social, that Soviet Union was so fond of quoting and referring to, and the civil and political rights of every human being, every citizen in Belarus. And uh, even without, let's say, discussing and debating whether Belarus should belong to Europe or should integrate in the European Union, We have a very clear set of criteria in the European Union. And if we want to go forward, we have to accept this set of criteria and reform our country accordingly. And then we can decide where to go. You know, as for the assistance that is being given by all kinds of foundations, I think the really serious review of the performance of those foundations is badly needed. Because in my view, there is no money and there is no support from these foundations to the real grassroots movements, to the real democracy forces. And the majority of the money goes to the gondos, goes to the groups organized by KGB for the purpose of getting Western money to imitate activities, not to be active. So I think that is part of the problem. It is not the major problem, but it is part of the problem, because if you claim that you are supporting democracy, you are supporting human rights, you have to really prove it. In my view, there is a lack of proof that those values are supported in our part of the world. 
that's a very interesting way of putting it. It's experience. It's not a way to put it. It's my experience. Tell me a little bit more about the next steps in the Belarusian context. So what is the strategy for the opposition over the coming weeks and months? Is it just to make your presence felt on public squares and streets over and over again? It feels at the moment like there's a kind of stalemate for protesters out in the streets, but they haven't been able to displace Lukashenko, who at this point seems more firmly in the saddle than he did about a month ago. So what is it that the opposition can do to dislodge the situation? What's the strategy going forward? No, he's not more firmly in his place. He's going completely mad. He's inadequate and it is visible. This secret inauguration, so-called inauguration of his, it was something that I think nobody nowhere ever seen or heard of. Uh, because it did show that he's panicking. He was afraid even to get the minimum number of people to greet him and to applaud him. Uh, Before he inaugurated himself, when more than 5,000 people were present only in the audience. So he doesn't understand what he's saying. And uh, we don't see anybody from the part of the government openly supporting him. He's appointing people uh, very erratically. For example, he dismissed all the heads of medical universities recently and appointed new ones. What What is that? Nobody could give any plausible explanation for this insane behavior. So he is very shaky. He is very scared. He's trying to hide his panic by brutality in the streets, by the people who are really now crossed all the red lines and attacking pregnant women, children even. But the resistance of the people should yield the results. I think there are several very important factors that have to be taken into account in our situation. First, the protest that is going on for over a month and a half. We never had such protest in Belarus. And people are getting experienced and people are getting tempered, people are getting trained, and people learn different tactics. And these tactics are now uh, spreading all over Belarus, and they are micro as well as macro tactics. You could see huge crowds of more than 100 or 150,000 people in the center of the city, and you can see the crowds of maybe 100, maybe several Uh, dozens of people in different places in the city in the evening. So it is spreading. So this is a very powerful factor that people are not going away from the streets. Second, I mentioned already, it is uh, that Lukashenko is being delegitimized internationally, which is very important. It is the first step of the international community, and they have to take the next step. They have to think how to deal with the ruler that they don't recognize, which is a very, I think, important next step for the international community. And then we're having defectors. Yes, it is going quite slowly. We expected it to proceed faster, but uh, it is going slowly. But we do have defectors in all the circles of the establishment. And this is also very important because there is no way back for those people who said that they are not uh, in agreement with Lukashenko's policy. So all these factors and some some other, uh, which I cannot maybe mention now, 
is a proof that uh, the situation will never be as before. Never. Lukashenko is doomed. Lukashenko is gone already. Uh, the question is how it will happen that he will be finally deprived of his uh, position in the country. Andrei Sanikov, thank you so much for coming on The Good Fight. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Best of luck in the coming weeks and months. Thank you. Zhiri Belarus. Lonely Belarus. Nathan Law, welcome to The Good Fight. Thanks. So tell us a little bit about who you are and the last weeks of your life in particular. You were one of the youngest elected legislators in Hong Kong, and you had to leave the country a few weeks ago to go to the United Kingdom, where you currently are in London. Tell us a little bit about how that came to pass. Yeah. Um, hello, everyone. Um, this is Nathan from Hong Kong. I am an activist that advocate for Hong Kong democracy. So when I was 21 in 2014, I was the student leader of a civil disobedience action, as we all know, as the Umbrella Movement. And then afterwards, I was involved in electoral politics and I was elected in 2016 to become the youngest ever lawmaker in Hong Kong at the age of 23. And afterwards, I was unseated and jailed. And two months earlier, I fled from Hong Kong to London uh, because of the newly implemented notorious national security law. So tell us a little bit about the history of democracy in Hong Kong. For listeners of a podcast who may not know the particular history of the city, you know, how did Hong Kong come to be ruled by Britain and then handed over in the 1990s to China, but supposed to have a semi-independent status? Tell us a little bit about the background to understand the stakes in the fight today. Yeah, in the 1980s, when the Chinese government, the British government was negotiating about Hong Kong's future, which Hong Kong was supposedly to be handed back to China in 1997. So they were talking about the process of the hangover and also the arrangement after the handover when Hong Kong is under the ruling of China. So but then, in order to appease Hong Kong people, Chinese government promised Hong Kong that there will be autonomy and democracy once Hong Kong is returned back to China. So in the future, even though like in mainland China, they are having socialist system, they're having, well, a party-led legal system, and the politics is completely dominated by the Communist Party, then Hong Kong will have another set of system that completely separate the one from mainland China. So it kind of made Hong Kong people more relieved about the handover and thinking that, oh, it's just a change of regime and nothing is going to change our life. So preserving the weight of life of Hong Kong is a major topic in 1997, when Hong Kong was handed back from British government to Chinese government. And after 1997, things changed very rapidly, even though Chinese government promised Hong Kong people that we have autonomy and democracy. But as the time goes on, our autonomy, freedom have been eroded and our democracy has never arrived. So for the past three decades, Hong Kong people have been fighting for democracy and have been fighting for the Chinese Communist Party to commit into the promises that they gave Hong Kong. But still, we are unable to do it. And the political climate in Hong Kong has been declining severely in recent years. So what did that decline of a political climate look like, you know, in which ways, in what ways were 
people in Hong Kong self-governing or free 20 years ago that you say are not now? In recent years, um, massive assemblies, rallies, demonstrations have been taking place. And the Beijing government seems very impatient about Hong Kong people. In 2014, when the government was discussing about the political reform regarding the 2017 chief executive election, which is our top official, which for now is still undemocratically elected, we had a civil disobedience action in order to pressure the Beijing government to implement genuine democracy in Hong Kong. But at the end, Beijing treated with a very heavy-handed approach. And since then, Beijing sees Hong Kong as a threat and tried to demolish the civic space and the civil society quite actively. So since then, in recent years, freedom like freedom of assembly, freedom of education, academic freedom, press freedom, we all have been witnessing landslide erosion on these particular regards. On this podcast, we've really thought about and chronicled how the erosion of those kind of institutions looks like in self-governing countries where authoritarian populists come to power. But I think it would be interesting to hear about how that process went down in these very different circumstances, where you have a majority of people within Hong Kong who want to preserve some of those freedoms and external pressure to undermine them. You know, what were the levers of that? How is it that the Communist Party was able to uh, narrow those spaces for free speech, as you say? Yeah, well, it can come in both ways. It can come from a top-down approach and a bottom-up approach. For top-down approach, it's easy to understand. For example, the, in the newly established national security law, the Hong Kong government, under the authority of the Chinese Communist Party, they have just issued statement talking about things that you cannot speak under the law. And when you speak it, you're breaching it and you will be submitted to years of imprisonment. For example, some of the movement slogans or slogans concerning idea of uh, Hong Kong independence, Hong Kong uh, self-determination, things like that, these all are seen as violation of the law. And for some more bottom-up approach, they will use a lot of pro-Beijing organizations or pro-Beijing units that have that kind of reporting culture and putting pressure on you when you speak something that they don't like and then harassing your families, harassing your working position and your companies and things like that. So they've been closing down the space for free expression by using draconian legal means and also some more harassment and uh, intimidation from their non-governmental structure. And explain to us how they're able to pass those laws. So there is a local parliament, but often these laws, as I understand it, are introduced against the will of a majority of this parliament. So when we're talking about this infamous security law, for example, what is the process by which that is implemented? Yeah, the, the national security law was implemented at the end of June. The implementation of the law circumvented all the local legislation and consultation. In Hong Kong, we have our legislative body. Even though the legislative body is not elected democratically, only around half of its seats are through direct election. But still, it carries certain portion of people's voice. But this implementation of the national security law circumvented all these local legislation process and directly drafted and published by the MPCSC, by the political decision-making body. 
in the Communist Party, which, well, to be honest, the local legislation part of Hong Kong should be in the autonomy that we shall deserve. So the Chinese Communist Party completely demolished that kind of legal spirit or rule of law spirit of the way that we should enact law in Hong Kong. And nonetheless, the, the reason why they do it is because they obviously recognize that the opposition in Hong Kong would be drastic and it's much more difficult to go through all these uh, rather complicated uh, legal processes in Hong Kong. So they decided to just publish it and implement it single-handedly by the central government. And this law, well, covers acts of succession, subversion, including with foreign forces, etc. But it is rather thickly defined and thickly written so that there are much room for the Chinese Communist Party to interpret it and then to apply it to different circumstances. And the threshold of breaking law is extremely low so that they could use it as legal weapon to go against any political dissidents that they want. So I'm trying to understand what the cases that Chinese nationalists make about the movement in Hong Kong, right? I'm trying to understand what kind of arguments they would make for why it would be legitimate for the mainland to exercise more control over Hong Kong. And I suppose there's two sets of arguments that come to my mind, and I'd love to hear your response to them. So the first is that Hong Kong has traditionally been a part of China, that it was colonized by the United Kingdom, and that it therefore should revert to full Chinese control, that the roots of Hong Kong's relative independence are historically illegitimate, and that therefore China today should be allowed to incorporate the territory into the rest of the country or the state. What do you think about that argument? I imagine you don't agree with it. What do you think that argument gets wrong? Yeah, of course. Um, I think most of Hong Kong people do not challenge the rationale of why Hong Kong was handed back to China. So basically, in the very beginning of uh, the handover in the first decades, things were very calm because Hong Kong people believe that in the future that the Chinese Communist Party will implement democracy in Hong Kong. So Hong Kong people is not challenging the fact that Hong Kong is part of China, even though there are voices saying that it should not be in that way. But mostly, they're not trying to challenge that legitimacy of the hangover process. But rather, they are asking the Chinese Communist Party to do whatever they have promised. So even though Hong Kong is under Chinese control, the pursuit for democracy and pursuit for autonomy, well, the legitimacy of it does not decrease just because we are under Chinese ruling. And that is also the reason why we have the one country, two system governing structure designed it at the first place, which we separate the political, economic and legal system between Hong Kong and China. So I don't think that kind of like rhetoric of Hong Kong is part of China is to justify that kind of like brutality and the authoritarian ruling of the Chinese government in Hong Kong. You know, imagining that China transformed into a liberal democracy, right? Imagining that actually there'd be a political change and the country adopted a multi-party democracy, you know, more robust rule of law and so on. Do you think under those circumstances, Hong Kong would still need to have a separate system from the rest of China? Or is this really ultimately a dispute about wanting to preserve those specific freedoms as opposed to a degree of autonomy from the mainland? 
Well, the autonomy of Hong Kong is not only about political, but there are a lot of different aspects. That is not only giving Hong Kong people to preserve its way of life, it's also benefiting the Chinese Communist Party and also the whole China. Like, for example, the reason why Hong Kong could provide credible professional services is because its legal system is separated from the one in mainland China, which is all at the mercy of Chinese Communist Party, and there is no rule of law in mainland China. So people decided to have court proceedings in Hong Kong rather than in the mainland China. So I think a whether should incorporate the whole system of Hong Kong into mainland China is not only about political influence or political structure, but there are lots of factors that we should consider. So for now, I think remaining Hong Kong to be an autonomous part and respecting its autonomy is the best relationship between Hong Kong and China. And that is, of course, preserving our way of life and really respecting our demands. So when you're saying that this is beyond political things, is there also a sort of cultural difference? Or you know, when you say the Hong Kong way of life, is that primarily about the kind of freedoms that Hong Kong has enjoyed that the rest of the mainland has not? Or is it also a set of cultural factors? Well, there are different layers about freedom, about culture, or like Hong Kong having its own very unique way of life. For example, yes, uh, we have a free flow of information. Uh, we don't have a huge internet firewall that blocks us from using WhatsApp and Facebook. Um, we speak in Cantonese, which is different from the modern that the whole China adopts. And we write in traditional characters, which is not the simplified ones that China has been using. And there are lots of these subtle things that we think, no matter in, in terms of values, in terms of freedom, in terms of culture, then we are kind of distinct from the ones in mainland China. So I don't think that kind of like differences signify any superiority or inferiority, but it's just a matter of differences. The other thing that helps me understand a little bit is to look at a map and to recognize how few friends China actually has in its regions. When you look at the United States or even at Russia, they have a few countries around the border which are quite friendly with them. You know, they have a kind of sphere of influence, which is a term I don't like. But even if we don't think that a sphere of influence is legitimate, they have a set of countries that are relatively friendly disposed towards them. What's striking to me about China is that it's obviously a very large and powerful country, and in that sense, doesn't have to be too afraid of its neighbors. But that to a remarkable extent, it is surrounded by countries with whom it has much more contested relations, whether it's India, whether it's a country like Japan, and so on. And I guess it makes me slightly pessimistic about the prospect of those territories which China regards as historically its own being able to preserve any kind of autonomy. Because if you're sitting in Beijing, I imagine you're looking at that map and you're saying, well, you know, really can't afford to give up on those places that are friendly to us or that have a historical relationship with us. How optimistic should we be? about the possibility of Hong Kong preserving its two systems? Or do you think it is ultimately likely, but in part because China feels somewhat surrounded by adversary powers, it is going to be uncompromising and ruthless when it comes to territories like Hong Kong? Well, I don't think we have to actually find reasons or justify this tighten and control over Hong Kong because they're surrounded by like adversary powers and things like that. But first of all, I think the reason why China is positioned in such an isolated and contested position 
is because of the very aggressive diplomatic and internal policies adopted by Xi Jinping. So if you look at the last decades under, like, for example, Deng Xiaoping era, that they've been using a much more reserved and humble diplomatic approach, and it makes that kind of relationship between nearby countries or even between US and the other Western powers very friendly. And when Xi Jinping took power in 2012, he just introduced very ambitious and aggressive diplomatic approaches and also quashing the civic space in mainland China, resulting, well, actually, counter-reactions of the international community over its expansion and over its aggression. So I think, of course, like as long as you aim to provoke all these countries and you get an adversary attitude, I don't think that is something China does not have any responsibility on it. And secondly, I think under Xi Jinping's leadership, the sole purpose of him is to concentrate power. Well, that tightening control in Hong Kong is not originated by adversary nearby countries or the worries about the other countries going into China. It's all about concentrating power. It's all about tightening control. It's all about kind of uniting all the countries to be submitted to his leadership and to achieve the great revival of the country. And that is the central idea of his philosophy. So that kind of draconian approach is not about whether there is any like adversary countries nearby. It's about Xi Jinping's governing philosophy and it's about a totalitarian or autocratic regime trying to centralize all the power by suppressing its people. Hmm, interesting. I'm interested also in the sort of similarities and differences between youth movements like the one that you've led in Hong Kong and ones that we're seeing in the West. You know, for those of us who care about the fate of liberal democracy around the world, it is inspiring to see young people standing up for those values in places, you know, from Belarus at the moment to Hong Kong. And ironically, it can seem as though in those countries that enjoy freedom of speech, for example, a lot of young people are challenging the importance of it, are saying that perhaps, for example, there's nothing bad or wrong with having a little bit less free speech if this means that we curtail what they consider a hate speech. So I guess, you know, my question to you is, how much kinship do you feel with youth movements in the United States or in Western Europe? Do you feel like you are talking about similar values and share a vision of a world? Or do you find that because of a very different political context in which you were formed, your values and your priorities are actually quite different? Well, of course, because like politics is a very contextualized um, activity. So it, sometimes it's quite difficult to have comparison to all these actions and protests happen all around the world. Well, of course, I think most of these actions are fighting for the same cause, even though, for example, in Belarus and in Hong Kong and also in the United States, we share completely different political structure. But even though in a democracy, there are lots of problems that need to be addressed. And whenever people fight against injustice and getting a lot of feedback from the community, and it means that there are indeed problems. So like, for example, the resistance in Belarus is definitely we're fighting for political fairness, we're fighting for open election, fair election. And I think I have a lot of resemblance towards their core. 
And for example, the environmental movement for climate change and things like that is also about protecting our future, our environments, and sometimes it's cross territory. So for me, I follow all of these movements and hope that injustice in the world can be addressed, no matter where and no matter under what circumstance, and individuals' dignity could be respected. So you know, I certainly see the similarity between the movement in Belarus and the movement in Hong Kong, despite, as you're saying, the differences in the political systems, the fighting against, and the differences in the local context. I guess I meant something slightly different with my question, which is to say that when I talk to young people in the United States, for example, a lot of them say, "Well, look, you know, we should try something completely different because this system has completely failed, and what do we have to lose? You know, things are so bad." That I'm not really worried about, you know, politicians who might challenge the basics of a political system because actually that's what we need. Things are so unjust and we are so unfree that we need that. And that strikes me as lacking in comparative and historical perspective, which is to say that it strikes me that they probably don't know what it looks like to live in a country in which you might actually end up in jail for what you say. In which people aren't free to go and express the views that they want, in which they really can't govern themselves, and so you know, to me, it's inspiring to see activists around the world who don't have easy access to those values coming to fight for them. But it also strikes me that even though protests may sometimes look similar or in a similar age range, the actual substantial values are quite different. And so I guess I was asking about that. You know, what would you say to younger people in the United States? On Western Europe, who think that their political system is so flawed that there's not much worth preserving in it? Well, I think for us, of course,、uh, we should not take democracy and freedom for granted. There's a, been sure a very brutal history of people fighting for it, and a lot of people sacrificed for these values. But on the other hand, of course, or even the way in a democracy, the system could also fail us. The system could also be flawed. So the problem is how we could strike a balance. But on the one hand, we should preserve all these values, but on the other hand, we should recognize the importance of having a foundation of it, and then to enhance it, to fix it on top of that foundation. So I think we need to talk things in context, and that political climate is different. But I think yes, indeed, if any like particular group or especially underprivileged, is also suffered in that system, then. There are needs to address that.、Hmm. Well, how optimistic or pessimistic are you globally about the future of democracy? I have been very struck and depressed by the rise of these authoritarian populist movements within democracies that subvert democracy and lead countries towards dictatorship, often at least with the initial support of their own populations, and that makes me fear that people can take those values so strongly for granted. That they are willing to hand them over in a free election, and that they often are willing to re-elect those same politicians, even though they're starting to attack and undermine key institutions that protect our freedoms. And then, on the other hand, I guess I'm heartened when I look at、uh, what happens in places from Belarus to Venezuela and beyond, in which people are losing their liberties. And when that process has gone far enough, citizens do seem to recognize the danger of that and stand up for it. Now, often that's too late. But it does make me think that there's something universal about those values. So, looking at these two sides of a coin, how optimistic or pessimistic does that make you for the future of democracy? The challenges on democracy has been severe, 
especially when the rise of authoritarianism is being witnessed and not challenged. And we sometimes put the narrative of trade over human rights and making us losing that authority or losing that legitimacy to speak out loud that we are here to preserve our freedom and democracy, even though we have to lose something. So for me, as long as we are too comfortable with our position, with our democracy, and they're not to outreach and to preserve our values, now definitely we'll face a lot of difficulties. And in that regard, I don't think we're in a good position, in good shape. And of course, we also see there are manipulation of the system in even though like established democracy and institutions are being discredited in quite a negative way. But I think that is the result of we have not been setting up an example of how we should preserve democracy and how we should act in accordance to a shared values in the sense of very narrow-minded, interest-based angle. So the reason why I think the the fight towards China and the fight for Hong Kong is crucial because the rise of China is actually the result of Western countries adopting a peaceful strategy like the Nam to grow for decades and having a wishful, wishful thinking that they would become democratized and free when the middle class rise. And that kind of prediction is completely wrong, but they have been encouraging people to believe in China, to believe in its system and crediting their authoritarian ruling for a very, very long time. So for now, I think it's important for the Russian society to really take up that legitimate ground to preserve the freedom and democratic values. And Hong Kong is obviously the most symbolic place to do it. We have been witnessing a place degraded from the pearl of Orient or the beacon of freedom in Asia to such an authoritarian state that people don't even have a freedom to speak up loud what they're thinking. So I think this is also the reason why I have that calling, not only because of Hong Kong people, but because that we need to address the authoritarian expansion of the Chinese Communist Party and to establish a value-based way of thinking and way of treating things in order to set up a good example and to make it work for our democracies. Mm. So I find it very interesting the way you talk about democracies in the West, broadly speaking, you know, as having these important values that we need to fight to preserve, but as also sort of having these flaws. I mean, with an outsider's view, you know, and I know that you're careful about how you speak about countries that aren't your own, but what kind of reforms do you think democracies in the West need in order to uh, remedy some of the injustices from which they suffer in order to make sure that their citizens recommit to those values that are now under threat in the ways you outline? I think one thing that we could do is, especially to China and to all these other authoritarian states, is that for democracies, like we really have to form a more united and coherent strategy and to act on the basis of preserving our values rather than putting trade in front of everything. And that, well, to be honest, that is how we lose that legitimacy and how we lose that kind of institutional trust when people could really resemble the way the government acts just for its interest, overriding its values and to apply it into political discussion internally. 
So I think setting up a good example is very important. And I think that is the right thing for the Western democracies and also Asian democracies to work on China stuff. So what do you think a foreign policy would look like that actually in a more robust way defends democratic values, whether it's in dealing with China or in dealing with other authoritarian countries around the world? If some of the people who listen to this podcast are influential in foreign policy in the United Kingdom or the United States or in continental Europe, what do you think those countries should be doing that they're not currently doing? Well, I think, first of all, we have to be very clear that the way Chinese authoritarianism or places like Russia and the other places, the trajectory of its development is not going to pull us closer. They're going to another extreme that is posing dangers to democracies and infiltrating our system using soft power and sharp power to craft the narrative and to make people accept authoritarianism and disregard that kind of positivity inside democracies. So I think we have to realize that or stop framing it as a strategic partnership. It's actually a threat to our core values. So that when we have a dialogue, when we have trade relation, when we have a trade agreement with them, we have to address that. And we have to be aware of human rights violation and make our agreement with human rights clauses and with demands and consequences rather than just letting them to do whatever they want, because they are not only doing things that are bad for their people, which we all have to be aware, but also they're exporting that kind of authoritarianism to democracies and try to dismantle and discredit us from inside out. The situation of 21st century with digital autocracy and with huge resources like China that they can manipulate in all the democracies so I think getting that rhetoric and getting that attitude straight so that we could follow up by concrete policies that could really change things. Yeah, I wonder what some of those concrete policies might look like. I've had one vague idea that I'd be interested in hearing your view on. You know, when it comes to the real problem of corruption and bribery, the United States a few decades ago adopted what I think is a very smart law, which is that if you're competing with another company for an important contract in a foreign territory. And in that country, bribery is the norm. You know, you have to engage in bribery in order to be in business. And that systematically favors companies that are willing to bribe. And so what the United States did was to say, we're going to stop all the companies from being able to bribe by implementing very heavy penalties for bribing, including penalties for the executives who are involved and who make those decisions. And that way, American companies can actually go to some of those foreign governments and officials and say, we cannot bribe you, we would go to prison. And it actually frees them up to avoid something. You know, I wonder whether with some of the free speech issues we see around corporations and Chinese influence, there might be a similar structural situation where, you know, movie studios, for example, think, well, look, if we don't censor our content or if we don't reprimand employees who speak out about some of these issues, then, you know, some other movie studio will or some other company is going to be able to do that business because they are willing to fire people who criticize the Chinese government, for example. And it might be that the American government could pass a law that punishes companies for giving in to that kind of pressure. And that would actually give those companies the legal backing to be able to say, look, we're not able to censor this. We're not able to reprimand our employees for what they say on this topic, that would be against the law in the United States. And so either you don't do business with any 
American or perhaps Western company, or you have to accept that our employees will continue to be able to speak freely on these issues. Do you think that's a good idea? Can you think of any other ideas that actually help to preserve spaces of free speech, not just in China itself or not just in Hong Kong, but in Western countries itself, where that pressure is increasingly being felt? Well, I think your idea is fantastic. That should be considered by policymaking people in in the US and in other European countries. And I think that there are like concrete policies that we could put forward. And like, for example, there have already been policies like that in place, I think in UK and in some other places that if you're using materials from the regions that is proven to abuse all these workers and committing human rights violation in order to get that surface, to get that cheap surface, then you should be punished because of your having that surface with them. Like for example, the Xinjiang cottons, a lot of them are actually manufactured by the concentration camp and by squeezing all this cheap labor from these Uyghurs. And if we have law that prohibits companies using these materials, that would send a huge signal and that would kind of like financially impact the concentration camp and the contracts that they signed. I think that is also one good way to kind of stop that kind of human rights violation. And also putting highest level of scrutiny of Chinese company when they want to go into foreign markets is also important because mostly for these giant company, they are actually state enterprise. The Chinese Communist Party basically take control of all these so-called independent or um, companies that are from the people. So I think this is also an important point that we put sufficient scrutiny on these companies, especially when they enter infrastructure that are important to the country that may pose a lot of threats towards people's privacy and uh, people's well way of life. And in order to protect us from that kind of intimidation from authoritarianism. So I think these are good directions that policymakers could consider and to restrain that kind of influence from these authoritarian countries. That's very helpful, yeah. What do you think are the prospects for the democracy movement in Hong Kong? The fact that you had to decide to leave the city, the fact that there are many people who are leaving Hong Kong at this point, the fact that some of the protests have died down because of how restrictive the security law is, all makes it feel a little bit like we might be approaching game over. At the same time, it seems as though China could lose a lot of international standing and credibility if it crushed the movement in an even more violent way than it has done so far. Do you think that your fight while valiant is a losing one or is there a realistic prospect for Hong Kong to regain some of the liberties that it has lost in the last two decades? Well, of course, for now, the movement in Hong Kong is at its low point because under the COVID and also that kind of excessive use of force from the police, it's difficult for us to gather and it's difficult for us to have that kind of weight of people, seed of people seen again because they would disperse any public gatherings. So for now, that kind of sentiment for people is not being represented by collective actions and collective actions is the essence of protest. But for me, I won't say that the movement is dead because I could still feel that kind of mental strength and eagerness of people voicing out loud and opposing the government. From my point of view, it's the end when people, they stop having that mentality to resist and protest. 
but I don't think it is now the case. It's just we're in a such a difficult times that people have to lay low a bit, and it's like a big storm coming in Hong Kong, and people have to find a shelter. People have to stop moving, trying to stay together in order to get through that storm. Of course, we don't know how long this storm would last, but I think people, even though in terms of actions, they are getting quieter. In terms of their way of thinking and their sentiments, it still remain a very radiant one. Nathan Law, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.